second week of Advent, so we got the second candle going, and it's Family Sunday. So hi, kids. Wow. Somebody get them some coffee. No, just kidding. Don't do that. Anyway. Hey, we're starting the, or, um, the second week of our uh, series called Family Christmas, and the tagline that we've been using is, every family has its issues. <clears throat> and that's the truth, isn't it? Um, there's always somebody in the family who's just a little off, right? I mean, somebody. And if you're doing a quick mental inventory right now and you can't think of who that is, it's probably you. (laughs) Yeah. This is that time of year when uh, um, it seems like tension begins to mount. Um, And I think it has a lot to do with just our expectations of the holiday season and then the opportunities that we have to do all kinds of things Um, this time of year. I know that this weekend for us has been like a sprint, you know, Um, there's just things that are going on with, you know, school events and and church stuff and and family things. And it's just there's just a lot going on. and, and I think what happens is, is that there's this, there's this underlying busyness that takes our attention away from the things that we normally do. And so we get this tension that mount, mounts up, and, and eventually it, it boils over just a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, it can. By the way, the thing to remember, and I, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this before, but the pressure that you feel from the outside rarely actually causes you problems but it will always reveal problems that exist, okay? Just keep that in mind. So if you're feeling some tension, if you're seeing, feeling some pressure and things are bubbling up, there's a real good chance that there's something already there under the surface. I have a friend of mine, uh, I haven't seen him in a number of years, but I worked with him, and uh, he was telling me about a family event that he had, and this was several years ago now, um, where he and his wife and his two young boys Uh, went to his sister's house for Thanksgiving dinner. And um, his sister happens to be a vegetarian. And our friend uh, and his family were were not by any stretch of the imagination. And in order for her to um, still serve Thanksgiving dinner and and feel like... uh, she was staying true to her vegetarian principles. <clears throat> she served uh, a, a, a protein product called tofurkey. <laughs> have, have you heard of this? To, tofurkey. Tofurkey. <laughs> Just the name kind of makes me a little concerned. So the way my friend described it is they're sitting at dinner, and no one knew she was serving tofurkey. In fact, they thought it was odd that she was hosting Thanksgiving because she was a vegetarian. She brings tofurkey. And she puts it in front, and he says, it's not in the shape of a turkey. It's just in, in a cube. And you slice off the cube, and you put it on your plate, and you put gravy over it. And, then, you know, and some of you, you know, may have experienced this before. I had not. And like I said, this was several years ago. And <clears throat> my friend is, uh, I mean, he's a talkative guy, but for the most part, he didn't, you know, do a whole lot, and he's just, he's just staring at his food, and I'm listening to his wife tell the story. He's staring at the food, and not looking at anybody. So, you know that the tension's mounting, <clears throat> right? The, 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 the stuff is bubbling up. 
He's not eating his food. Everyone else is eating. Nobody is commenting on the tastiness of said tofurkey, but anyway, so he says one word. He goes, tofurkey? Okay, question mark. His dad throws down his fork and says, why do you always have to say something? <laughs> one word. One word. That's a family who's got some issues underneath the surface where just a little bit of pressure caused it to explode, right? Tofurkey. Who knew that that would be the linchpin for all kinds of family drama? Well, uh, we've been talking about Jesus' family in Matthew chapter 1. And, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that we're in good company because, you know, he's had his fair share of, of, of oddballs and outlaws in, in his family tree as well. And, and Matthew writes about this in full display. And the way he even writes about it is enough to, to, to get our attention. And if you're a first century Jew and you're reading this genealogy, some of these things you would suck the air right out of the room going, oh, I can't believe he did that. I can't, I can't believe he wrote that. Why, why is that in there? We talked about one of those last week, and we're, we're going to pick this up again. And it's interesting to note that every single time that Matthew, in the genealogy, mentions a female, there's a story. It just, there just is. And, and by the way, before you know, the, the ladies get all up in arms about it, usually it's something that the guy did that was stupid that the lady had to clean up for. I'm just saying, okay, some of you are going, yes, that's what it's like at Christmas time at my house. So, <laughs> but keep that in mind whenever you read through the genealogy that Matthew lays out for us in, in his first chapter, there is a lot of, of this family drama that's going on, and he usually marks it for us by, by mentioning a female. And so let's go back into Matthew chapter 1 and see what we can learn again about Jesus' family and what that might have to do with our family, all right? So here, here we go, Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Okay, so remember, Matthew's trying to do two things. He's trying to establish Jesus as a legitimate Jew, and secondly, as the legitimate heir to the throne of David. So he's royal. So he's not only Jewish, he's royal. So he says this in the very first verse, son of David, the son of Abraham. Next. <clears throat> Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Remember we talked about, about those two last week. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, which, by the way, if you uh, tell me that you're pregnant and you're going to have a boy, that's one of the names I'm going to recommend. <laughs> Just saying, it's a Bible name. I think we need to bring it back, right? The father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, not Salmon, Salmon, okay? Next. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, female. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, another female, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that Jesse was the father of, eventually, King David. Okay? So we've got this genealogy going on, but here again, we have two women. Now, again, this would have been very interesting for a group of Jews to read this. Rahab. So, what I'd like to do is I'd like to, to talk about, about Rahab and, 
I, I think this is a very interesting part of the family, family tree. And so I want to I wanna talk about Rahab a little bit. Next slide. Yes, okay. So we have to go back in history after the Exodus. So remember, Israel is captured. They're in Egypt. They're enslaved. God sends Moses, brings them out. And eventually they make it to the promised land and they're ready to take over. They're ready to invade Canaan. And so we look in the book of Joshua about the conquest of Canaan. Israel is preparing, and they need to do a little bit of reconnaissance. And the first major city they're going to come across is Jericho when they get to the other side, when they get to the western side of the, uh, uh, of the what's, what's the river? You know what? The what? Jordan, right, the river Jordan. Jericho, this major city, um, which, by the way, if you remember the Veggie Tales video, there's no river. I don't know why. Anyway, I don't remember a river. So here it is in Joshua 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. I know what you're thinking. It's Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Wow, that's interesting. First place you would go? Really? Hmm. So they entered the house of a woman who has a very particular profession, and her name is Rahab. Hmm. Now, she agrees to hide these two spies, but there's a price that they need to pay, and we find this in verse 12. She says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Because she knew what was coming. The reputation of the Israelites and their ability to win battles has already infiltrated all of Canaan. They understood what it was that they were facing. And so she says, yes, I will hide you, but please, let's have some reciprocity. Yes, I can't say it. I haven't had enough coffee this morning. But let's, let's make sure that I'm going to save your life. Please save mine. It's a, it's a fair request that she's made here. <clears throat> and so you know what happens. They march around seven days. On the seventh day, they march around seven times, and the walls come tumbling down, right? Big trumpet blast. Notice this in Joshua chapter 6. <clears throat> the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. This is Joshua's command to his armies. And he says, look, I'm going to make good on the promise that we made, and I'm glad. But what's so fascinating to me is that Rahab's family becomes part of Israel. She marries a man named Salmon, and they have a son named Boaz. Also on my list of potential Bible names for your kids, Boaz. It's a good one. We, read, we meet Boaz in a book called Ruth. And what's so fascinating to me is that Boaz has a description given to him. Here it is. 
in uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, it's very easy to just kind of gloss over that. Oh, yeah, he was a man of standing. Ah, but the ancient Hebrew has a very specific meaning, this idea of man of standing. First of all, well, it has two, uh, I would say, two connotations to it. Number one is that he was wealthy. Man had some money. But number two, he was also a man of high honor or valor. And both those things went hand in hand in that one word. So when we read that he was a man of standing, it means that he, he had a bank account, but he also achieved it in a very honorable sort of way. He's quite the catch. Does that make sense? And so you have Rahab, the prostitute, marrying someone, and they produce this beautiful man named Boaz. But first, we need to know a little bit more about this story before we continue. And so we pick this up shortly after the conquest in the book of Ruth, during the period of the judges. Now, if you're thinking about judges and that particular uh, period of history within the Old Testament, you need to think wild, wild west. It was very mm, lawless in many respects, and God would uh, continually send certain individuals called, called judges in order to save parts of Israel from their neighbors and from themselves in a lot of cases as well. And so this is the time period, and yet here we have this beautiful story of Ruth and Boaz. Let's read it. <clears throat> in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, to be clear, Moab is on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay, So they would have to cross over, and apparently things were a little bit better there than they were in Israel. And so this man uh, takes his wife and his two sons. Keep reading. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his, of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now, remember from last week, in this day and age, women had a very specific uh, <laughs> lack of role in the overall community. And so for a woman to have her husband die meant that she either needed to go back to her, her father's house or she needed to be taken care of by her sons, okay? In this case, it's two sons. This is good. Keep going. They married Mobite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, which, by the way, if I remember correctly, uh, Oprah's mom wanted to call her Orpah but misspelled it. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's where that comes from. If you wonder where Oprah got her name from, uh, it's, I guess it's from here. But uh, one named Orpah, the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malone and Kilion also died. Oh, unfortunate. Bad luck. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Ah, now we have a problem. She's not really allowed to own property. She certainly has no real means to support herself or now these two women in her household. And they're in a foreign country. 
this is a precarious position for these women to be in. Next slide. <clears throat> so we have Naomi, Elimelech, Malone, and Kilion, and they marry, obviously, next slide, Orpah and Ruth. But notice what happens. We have these three women left over. And they're trying to decide what they're going to do to support themselves. Because eventually, the food's going to run out, the income's going to run out, they're not going to have very much. <clears throat> so what do we know about this woman named Ruth? Well, first of all, we know that she is a, a, a Mobitess. She's a foreigner. She is a widow, but she's also very faithful to her mother-in-law. Hmm. Orpah, we find out, returns to her family. But Ruth stays with Naomi, and the two of them travel back to Bethlehem, where Elimelech is from. An ancient law required landowners to allow poor people to glean from fields. So think about this. You've got this field, and if you are a wealthy landowner, and you are able to produce some type of food for your family and some surplus in order to sell, the law of Moses required that you left some in the field so that the poor could come and glean some food. And so Ruth ends up in a field owned by a man named Boaz. Very fortunate for her. Remember, this thing might seem a little bit odd to us, but I try to continually remind us every time we open the text, we're tourists. And we don't necessarily understand all of the customs and all of the laws, and so we have to get our minds around that in order to understand what's really happening within, within the text. And so Ruth ends up in Boaz's field in order to collect grain. So in this patriarchal culture, there's nobody to protect them, and wealthy landowners would often take advantage of people in these positions, but this is Boaz we're talking about. This is someone different. And Boaz shows kindness to Ruth and makes sure that she has plenty to glean. In fact, he tells his workers, leave a little bit extra, because they need it. Ruth, chapter 2, verse 20 the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, meaning his relative, um, because that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Well, what does that mean? Now, some of you may have heard this term before called uh, kinsman redeemer. Have you heard this term? Uh, the Hebrew term is goel, and it, um, it has a variety of uh, different places where we find it in the, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament. But under Hebrew law, a goel, a kinsman redeemer, a guardian redeemer, was a male relative who was responsible for any relative who was in trouble, in danger, or in need. They were not only responsible for their physical safety, but also their financial well-being. It was a it was kind of like another insurance policy, and just a way of, of taking care of the people who desperately needed it. And so Boaz becomes the guardian redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. A male relative responsible for one of their relatives in trouble, in danger, 
or in need. If you think of it, this is exactly what Jesus does for us. We're in trouble, we're in danger, and we're in need. Even to this day. So we have a former prostitute and a foreigner listed in the genealogy. And if you were a first century Jew, why, Matthew, why would you put that in there? Why couldn't you just name the male relatives? Why did you have to put somebody with, with that type of profession in? Why did you have to put somebody who is a foreigner? Why would you put that in there? Why would you do that, Matthew? Don't ever underestimate power and the beauty of a redeemed person. The capacity they have to change things. Don't ever underestimate a redeemed person. Especially yourself. You know, whatever is in your past, wherever you came from, whatever circumstances forced you to make difficult choices, some of which you regret, or even how you feel about yourself. This baby that we, we wait for, that we mark time with candles, this reason for the Christmas Advent season, this Jesus is our guardian redeemer, and that's what he does. He redeems, he restores, he renews, not just the whole world, but you personally.